0: Glory to your name, Lord. We just thank you for your word and pray that you would just apply it to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. All right. And uh, I had someone ask, since uh, we're not having a Christmas day service on Sunday, is today's message going to be Christmas uh, oriented. No. So we're <laughs> going to continue on in Mark 15. Uh, there will be a message, of course, on the Christmas Eve service. But one of the things I love about just going verse by verse through the Bible is is the Lord works out the schedule. It's not anything that I come up with. I don't sit down and go, okay, on this date, I want to be here. And I love to see how it works out. And And I think it's great, although very intense, I think it's great that here in this Christmas season we are going to be looking at the cross today. Because while it's it's encouraging and it's wonderful to think about the great gift that God the Father gave to us as, as the human race by bringing his son to Bethlehem, he brought him here for the cross. and And not to make it overly heavy or to take away from any of the Christmas joy. But I think for us to really get that Christmas joy, we need to understand what he came for, right? And so we continue on in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Last week, again, we saw very intense things taking place. The intensity has, has picked up. as We see Jesus' prayer in the garden. We see Judas betraying him with a group of armed men. We see Peter's denial and Jesus' arrest and all of these things. Um, But it's important for us to know and remember, Jesus has this all under control. He is not being taken by surprise by any of it. He is not caught off guard by any of it. He's been warning and telling his disciples, look, this is what's coming. This is what's next. And this is in the will of the Father. And If there was any question about that, him praying in the garden, take this cup from me if it is possible. That cup has not passed. There is no other way to save humanity than this one, Jesus Christ paying for our sins. And uh, so there's no doubt that this is the Father's will. And so, again, we continue on, chapter 15, as we see uh, the trial and, and through the crucifixion. And unfortunately, that's as far as we're going to go. There's a lot here in chapter uh, 15, but we won't be getting into the resurrection. So again, with our great timing of things, we're studying the cross at Christmas time and we'll study Easter on New Year's Day. That's how we do it. So let's pray and we will get into chapter 15. God, we thank you uh, just for the power that's in your word. And we pray that today you would just remove any of the distractions, concerns, or burdens that we came in here with, that we could hear from you through your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you teach us and lead us and have your way in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Chapter 15, (coughs) excuse me, verse 1. It says, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes, and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And then Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him, again saying, Do you not answer, or do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. So Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. And then the multitude, crying aloud, began to to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered and said to them, "Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews?" For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, what, do you, what then do I do with excuse me, what then do you want me to do with him?" was called the king of the Jews. And so they cried out again, crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them and delivered Jesus after he had been scourged to be crucified. The religious leaders have already had their trial that night they have found Jesus guilty. Um, as we talked about last week, it was illegal for them to meet at nighttime, and they were not in the right place to hold a trial at all. And so when they meet here in the morning, it's kind of to try and legitimize the decisions they've already made. And very quickly, they just go, yes, we all agree, and send him off to Pilate. But of course, their accusation to Pilate is that, he is, that Jesus is a rebel. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, that he is against Caesar. and and therefore needs to be dealt with. And that's why in verse 2, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? To say that you were a king in Rome was to be directly against Caesar, right? And Jesus, uh, you know, he doesn't give any long explanation. He doesn't explain what it means to be the Messiah or the king of the Jews. He just says, it is as you say, which leads to more accusations. So then they start firing all these other things at Jesus, and he just doesn't answer, doesn't defend himself. And I I think it's interesting because Pilate uh, has has sat before many trials. That was part of his position. He would have seen all kinds of guilty people brought before him continually. and, And there's something so different about Jesus. That though there's all these accusations, he is unlike anybody else. He is just peacefully calm, not at, acting out of fear or anger or vengeance, and it is so different that it says that he marvels at this, that Pilate sees Jesus, and he doesn't know what's up. He's not doesn't think he's the Messiah, doesn't care if he's the Messiah, but he marvels at his response. And Pilate is an interesting guy. Uh, we won't go too deep into all the things about Pilate, but one of the, the things is he knows what's going on here. He's not being fooled. He knows that they've turned Jesus over out of envy. And honestly, that would be all he needed to go, this, is, this trial's done. I'm not going to hear anything from you. Simply that the fact that he knew that, he could have dismissed this trial anytime he wanted. But he chooses to let it go on and on. But he knows that why they're there. They know, he knows why Jesus has been brought before him And what he tries to do is kind of get around the religious leaders. He's trying to appease them a little bit to make it look like they're being heard. And so he goes around them to go to the crowd to go, well, what would you guys want? And he gives them a decision that should have just been a slam dunk. That in their uh, custody is this guy Barabbas, who is a rebel and a murderer. Interesting, he's actually guilty of the things they're accusing Jesus of. This guy actually did it. There's no question. He's guilty of all of it. And so, the fact that he is a murderer, that he is a a rebel and guilty, the crowd should have, it shouldn't have even been like, well, let's let's think about this. Who do we want? I'm sure that when he proposed the idea to the crowd, he was like, oh, absolutely. They're going to let Jesus go. What has Jesus done? But. Here we see a great example of the difference between the counterfeit and the reality. Barabbas, his name literally means son of the father. And Jesus is the son of the father. Barabbas is trying to get worldly power through conflict. Jesus is trying to save the world through sacrifice. And what I've also found, looking through history and just human fallen nature, when a crowd or a group is given the choice between the reality and the counterfeit, they would love to choose the counterfeit every time. Now, Pilate is also in a tough situation here. Uh, He is, uh, there is not a lot known about him. What is known is that he was not a good leader. He was pretty good as a military leader, but not as a politician, and he's made a lot of really bad decisions in Jerusalem, which have led to two major riots, big enough riots that the word of them got back to Caesar, and Caesar has let Pilate know, one more outburst, one more riot, and you will be put to death. So he's got a lot of motivation here to not allow any riots to break out, and that's uh, exactly where this ends up going. Now, it's probably most likely the religious leaders also knew about this. And that's why they stir up the crowd, why they get them all hyped up. And it's, Matthew records that a, a tumult or a riot was about to break out, right? So when you understand that that's kind of what's going on here, and this discussion back and forth with, with Pilate and the crowd, who do you want? And they say Barabbas. And well, what about Jesus? Well, oh, crucify him. And even Pilate is going, what has he done? Again, knowing that he was innocent, Pilate could have just dismissed all of this. But because he was afraid of that riot breaking out, verse 15 says, So Pilate wanting to gratify the crowd. Sacrifices justice, sacrifices what's right to gratify the crowd. To save his own skin, compromises on everything. Um And he delivers Jesus to be scourged and then to be crucified. The scourging uh, was a brutal whipping. And again, not to go into all of the details of it, but Rome had perfected this part of the torture. It wasn't just a whipping for a whipping's sake. It wasn't just taking someone in the public square and beating them as an example. It was actually a, a very refined way of interrogation. And so when they took a person and they tied them the whipping post, they would start off kind of a medium strength. Now, if the person being whipped began to confess their crimes, the whip would fall a little lighter. If they began to confess the crimes of others and rat out their friends and other people that they knew, again, the, the whip would fall even lighter. But if they said nothing, it would fall harder and harder every time. More people died of this whipping than survived. And so Jesus had no crimes to confess. He was silent through it all. He would have received the worst of it. Verse 16 goes on. It says, Then the soldiers led him away to the hall called Praetorium. And they tall- called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And began to salute him. Hail, the king of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put on his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place, Galgotha, which is translated Place of the Skull. And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And an inscription of his accusation was written above the King of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saves others. Himself he could not save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified reviled him. Now we know why the religious leaders were so angry with Jesus. He was messing with their whole system. He was calling out all their hypocrisy and all of their, you know, business practices and how they were taking advantage of the people. But why would the soldiers make a point of bringing in the whole garrison, mocking Jesus and being so brutal to him because they don't care about blasphemy. They don't care about scripture. They don't care if he's the Messiah or not. But then I think there's two main reasons. The first is they absolutely hated Israel. And his historical documents talk about this and bring this out. While Rome had conquered all of the known world, very few places had caused as much ongoing trouble as Israel. Always uprisings and rebellions and constant chaos within their political leaders. They hated Israel with a passion. And so now there is this guy who's claiming to be the king of the Jews, and they're able to pour all of that hatred on him. has nothing to do with Jesus. has nothing to do with his miracles or his teaching. They could care less about any of that. It's all about that he represents the nation of Israel to them, and therefore they are just punishing him as much as they could. The second part, I think this is more for all of us, for all of mankind to understand. Because there's still this kind of weird, I think it's a weird debate that people talk about. Who's, who's responsible for the, the murder of Jesus? And people will go, whoa, it was the Jews. I mean, you look, the, the Jewish leaders set him up. They should have known better. They should have been looking for him. It was the Jewish crowd that said, crucify him. And so they put all of the, the responsibility on Israel. Uh, and I've still had conversations with people, actually not that long ago, that people used that same idea to justify their current hatred of Israel. And to, to say that God has abandoned Israel, which is completely contrary to Scripture. But it wasn't just Israel. Pilate is the one that turned his back, who could have dismissed that case at any point and did not. The soldiers and all of their venom poured out on Jesus. Jesus came to save everybody because everybody is guilty, both Jews and Gentiles alike. It is not one or the other. It's everybody. Now, concerning the crucifixion itself. Uh, Rome did not invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. It was actually invented a couple hundred years before this. I think it was the Persians that started it. But Rome had just gone through every detail to make it as brutal, painful, and lasting as they could. To make it humiliating and shameful, usually they would choose a very highly visible place, the entrance to a city or up on a hill where everybody saw it. And the message was clear. You step out of line, and this is what's going to happen to you and your family. There was no no soft-selling that idea. Everybody understood exactly what was being told to them by Rome. And part of this shameful execution was leading them out, leading the condemned out through the city to the place of crucifixion. And so when it talks about that they then led Jesus away to crucify him, that's what it's talking about, that there was this kind of back-and-forth meandering path that everyone would see the condemned. And along the way, Jesus is unable to carry his cross. So much taken at him from the whipping and the beatings and everything that he collapses under the way to the cross. And so verse 21 says that they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Um, Now, Simon is not from Israel. Cyrene is actually a long ways off. It's uh, North Africa, about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. So he's, for whatever reason, maybe it was the Passover, but whatever has brought him to Israel, to Jerusalem, this isn't his place. Mark makes a point of saying that he was passing through. Um, And so they have Simon. Simon carry his cross. Now, interesting also that uh, church history tells us that Simon gets saved. No, it's not recorded in, in the scriptures, but the fact that Mark and the other uh, gospels, when Simon's mentioned, mention his sons because his sons became leaders in the church. And Rome, uh, Paul mentions him in Romans 16. So the reason that Mark mentions him, he's like, oh, you guys know Alexander Rufus. This is his, their dad. He's the one that carried the cross for Jesus. And they take him away to the place called Galgotha. Um, Galgotha, the Latin for it is Calvary. That's why uh, Calvary Hillside, not just because we've got this beautiful hillside out here, but because on the hillside of Calvary is where our price was paid. It's also called the Place of the Skull, or or it literally translates to Place of the Skull, uh, which has a double meaning. It's because it's the place of death. But the hill itself, from a certain angle, looks like a human skull. And so... uh, that's why they chose it, and it was highly visible. I mentioned this a little bit last week because we were talking about Jesus and studying Jesus, his prayer in the garden. I think it's very easy for us to start focusing on the physical pain, and there's a lot. I, I think it's, it's a good study for us to do, to talk about, but I think too often we, we focus on the physical things that he went through, you know, the nails through his wrists and through his feet, and The whipping and how brutal it was. And it was brutal. No doubt about it. But I think it's important for us to know that the greatest pain that he's going through is not physical. It is spiritual. Good men have died for a worthy cause many times in the past. People have faced torturous deaths for a good reason. This is more than that. This is... God Almighty, holy and perfect, taking the weight of the sin of the world that he did not deserve. My punishment, my guilt, all my sin heaped upon him who is innocent. And the the price for sin is separation from God. That the eternal son is separated from the eternal father. We can't understand that. We can't wrap our minds around what that is. But it is more horrific than nails or whips or any of those things. While Jesus is there on the cross, they offer him this wine that's mingled with myrrh. And uh, he chooses not to have it now again, one of the things that uh, his- history records is that from this whipping or other whippings like it, uh, one of the effects of it is this overwhelming thirst, and so they would take this wine and myrrh or is that really vinegar mixed together, and this was a powerful drug again, this is part of rome 's perfection of crucifixion because it seems like mercy it was this very intense drug that they would give to people on the cross. They allowed the women there in different towns to make it and prepare it under the guise of it being merciful as a painkiller for those suffering. The problem is, is the more you drank, the longer you lasted. Some people lasting up to four days because of taking this. Jesus would not drink it. He would take cross and all of the punishment at full strength upon himself, not being doled of the pain whatsoever. Verse 24 says, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. If you are not familiar the importance of Psalm 22, this is maybe I think the most prophetic, powerful psalm or any prophecy of the Old Testament that points directly at the cross. It's also important to know that it's pointing towards the physical part of the cross. So the pain, the thirst, the anguish physically that he would go through. But also the things that people would be doing, wagging their tongues, wagging their heads, mocking him. The very words that are being spoken to Jesus here are spoken in Psalm 22 write down to them casting lots for his clothing and dividing them among him, among themselves. It is dead on prophecy. Now, while this Psalm 22 is the physical things that he endured, Psalm 88, I encourage you to write that down, look it up later on, gives you just a glimpse of the spiritual anguish that he went through. So Psalm 88 is the spiritual side of things. Psalm 22 is the physical side of things. And again, man, these are things that are so far beyond us. We can't wrap our minds around them. Anything we've been through was so shallow and small in comparison. We consider this huge contrast again. Here is the most selfless act ever. Jesus could have stopped this at any point. He could have said, no, that's it. I changed my mind. I'm not doing this. Let mankind be lost. But he's he's, he's going through all of this for us, paying our price that we owed. He owes none of it. No reason for him to take it on himself other than to save us out of love. Yet here in the midst, in fact, the very people he has come to save are mocking the very work that he's doing. Verse 31, they say, He saves others, himself he cannot save. For him to save others, he couldn't save himself. He could not come down from the cross and save mankind. He had to endure it. They said, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now again, we see everybody is guilty. The religious leaders, Rome, everyone from the, those with the greatest powers to those criminals crucified with him are all guilty, all mocking. Now the good news is, is that the gospel, other gospels tell us that one of those criminals repents and gets saved at the last hour. I love that. And I think, to me, that's one of the greatest things. Understanding the thief on the cross getting saved, it just clears away so much of the nonsense that we get caught up in. You know, we can start looking at all the things that divide the church and you know, our predestination and free will and, you know, pre-tribulation rapture and all these things. And it's like, picture this guy standing in glory <laughs> and being asked those questions. Well, where do you stand on the rapture? And he's like, what's the rapture? know, <laughs> What do you think about the redemption of mankind? I don't know. What are you talking about? The guy next to me said I can go to heaven, and here I am, right? We overcomplicated a lot. We get caught up on a lot of details. And don't get me wrong. I think those are all great things for us to wrestle with and struggle with and learn for our own edification. But if you want to know the bare minimum to get in, that's the guy, Right? And verse 33 goes on. It says, Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by When they heard that, said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and lifted the sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone, and let us see if Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, so that when when the centurion who had stood opposite him saw that he cried out, Like this, and breathed his last. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, when evening had come, Because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph then he brought fine linen and took, da- took him down and wrapped him in linen and laid him in a tomb which had been, ma- had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Now, in all of these things going on, the intensity of the cross, there is darkness over the land. And, uh, and a lot of people try and dismiss this. Darkness, this darkness is a big deal. I've heard people say, oh, it just happened to be a day where an eclipse took place. Well, an eclipse lasts minutes. This lasted three hours. Also, this was at the time of Passover. Passover is set by the full moon. An eclipse cannot happen when there's a full moon. This was not an eclipse. There's other records, other parts of the world that there was a time that lines up with this where about three hours, there was no light at all. As if the sun simply chose not to shine for three hours. In verse 34, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I said again, the punishment of sin is separation from God. But I also believe that this is Jesus telling everyone, this is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. Those are the words that start Psalm 22 off. And he's telling them, this is it. This is what Psalm 22 is all about. It was a very well-known psalm. And he's letting them know, (laughs) this is what's happening right now. He cries out with a loud voice and breathes his last. Darkness Earthquake, and then we're also told that the veil of the temple was torn in two. Uh, This was no just small curtain. History says that this was actually two curtains, one in front of the other. Each one was nine inches thick of material and 18 feet tall. There have been some calculations made that in order to tear even one of those veils, it would take two semi-trucks on either side pulling in opposite directions. I also think it's neat that there was a witness to this because they didn't just show up and find the veil torn. They said how it was torn, from top to bottom. Somebody saw that go down. And it opens up the Holy of Holies. That's what that veil did is it it separated the whole world from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the Shekinah glory of God was, where a high priest was only allowed to enter once in A year, one day out of a whole year, one man could enter in. And now that is torn. And access to God has been made for everybody. Now, though he didn't know about the veil, the centurion sees all these other things, the darkness. We also know there was an earthquake that took place. And he speaks this great truth. Truly, this was the Son of God. Joseph of Arimathea. We know nothing about. This guy's kind of been in the shadows or on the side. We're told he's a follower of Jesus. We're also told that Nicodemus was a part of this as well. These are two guys that were on the outside. They weren't part of the 12. They didn't travel with Jesus as far as we know. But they show up at this very difficult time. Now, this would have fallen to Jesus' family. Then when somebody died, it was up to the family to take care of all the arrangements, to take care of the burial. And they're nowhere to be seen. It always amazes me when everything goes bad. Who shows up to help? It's never who you think. It's not the disciples. It's not his family. And I found the same thing in my life. Things just like fall apart, go as bad as they can go. And it's the unexpected people that God brings in to go, hey, we're here to help. What do we what do you need? And in this case, it was a big deal for. Joseph and for Nicodemus, this being the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath, and it also falling with uh, Passover. For them to bury somebody at this time makes them unclean. They can't have a meal with their family. They can't go to their homes. um, So there will be outcasts, yet they choose to do it anyway. It also aligns them with Jesus very clearly. For Joseph to go to Pilate and go, uh, I need Jesus' body. There was no doubt this guy was a follower of Jesus. Jesus was just put to death for rebellion. It puts Joseph and anyone else in a very dangerous place, yet he goes anyway. A lot of bravery on Joseph's part. And again, this is a very final act. They're not burying Jesus, expecting him to rise in three days. They're not looking for him to come back. To them, this is the end of everything they'd hoped for. But for us, again, I think the timing of this is important as we are getting ready for Christmas. Because this is what the love of God looks like. This is the love of God. Romans 5 says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not He didn't wait for us to get better. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to be somebody worth saving. He saved us right where we, were at, where we were at, while we were still sinners, while we were the guilty ones. That's when he died for us. And again, we know. We know what's coming next. We know the good news is still ahead, that Jesus is going to overcome sin and death and the grave and have victory over all of the powers of hell. And so we can look at this and rejoice. But as we enter into our Christmas season and giving, man, I think it's so good for us, of course, not to get distracted with all the commercialism and all the stuff and the things, but to just take that moment and go, Lord, thank you, thank you for not just coming here, but the reason you came here, that you came to save a sinner like me. You came to pay the price I owed. You could have stopped it at any time, but you chose to do it all. Thank you for that gift. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.